of my voice. This is my sixth week in a row preaching, which I, which I normally would never do. Um, I just didn't trust anyone else to know that. Um, I, no one else was available. So here I am, I'm still preaching. But I've got one more week next week, and then we have Greg preaching, which we can't wait for. Greg, thank you. And Victoria and I are off to celebrate 10 years of marriage. He's still standing, and we would like to invite you all to come. No, <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are going to Jonas at Whale Beach. So someone actually gave that to us, which was incredible. And I said, look, Victoria, 10 years of marriage, that's amazing. What, let's make it two nights. And uh, we had a look at the price, and then we decided, yeah, we'll just do the one night. Um, <laughs> so we're looking forward to that. Um, I hope you've got your notebooks. Make sure you take some notes. Remember, that's how we learn not just by sitting here, going in and going out. So a reminder to take notes. We are studying Isaiah together, the Old Testament prophet, and we have passed the halfway mark in this book with last week's story about King Hezekiah and God's people being miraculously delivered from the threat of the Assyrian army. And the encouragement to us as modern-day believers of, in, in God is that we too might stand firm in our faith and trust him for our salvation. We enjoyed some of the life and the apologetics of John Lennox, um, the professor of mathematics at Oxford University, who's a, a wonderful defender of the Christian faith and talks a lot about science and faith. Um, just like Hezekiah sought wise counsel from the prophet Isaiah in his day. Um, and I was tempted this week, as we get to Isaiah 40, to just play Chariots of Fire and talk about my hero, Eric Little, for half an hour. Um, have people seen Chariots of Fire? Yes. It's the greatest film I think ever made. I won the Academy Award. And uh, Eric Little, of course, the great Scottish Christian who reads Isaiah 40 in the film. If you haven't seen it, I think it's on Netflix. So go and watch it for the hundredth time. Now, some of you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Has anyone heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and kind of wondered what is that? Um, I thought as we begin, I would illuminate a little on this, particularly as it relates to the book of Isaiah. Um, so in putting together the Old Testament uh, into what we have in our Bibles today, scholars had long relied on the earliest Hebrew texts that we had, Hebrew being the language of the Jewish people. And that's called the Masoretic Text. And the earliest one that we had was actually dated to a thousand years after Christ. Right? That's quite, you know, that might surprise you. That's quite a long time from when the actual um, events happened. But of course, we also had the Greek language version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which dates to 300 years before Jesus. And that relates to what we're studying. Because the people of God went into exile and the Greek world kind of engulfed the ancient world, the, 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 the people of God, the, the, the Jewish people, translated their scriptures into Greek. Okay, and so that's 300 years before Christ, and that matches up very well with the Masoretic text. But we didn't have any ancient Hebrew text other than a few um, fragments and part copies of the Old Testament in Hebrew. Then, in 1946... Some Bedouin shepherds near the Dead Sea in current-day Israel wandered into a cave. Can you believe this? And what they found in that cave was a rich trove of manuscripts, including 
a full copy of the book of Isaiah in Hebrew from almost over a hundred years before Christ. Isn't that remarkable? So in these caves, it's called Qumran. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, An almost exact copy of the 66 chapters of Isaiah were found. And they've been scientifically dated to over a thousand years before those other earliest Hebrew manuscripts, um, the Masoretic text that we had up until that point. You can go to Jerusalem today and see the Dead Sea Scrolls, including the full book of Isaiah, at the Israel Museum. Um, and I was, we, we went to um, a musical on Wednesday night with Katie and Ollie. They took us to Come, Come From Away. Great show, but I'm not here to talk about that. But anyhow, Katie lived in Israel. She has been to the Israel Museum. She has seen the entire manuscript of Isaiah on display in the Israeli Museum. Now, other than that being one of the great archaeological discoveries of the 20th century, it reassures us about the way that the scriptures have actually been very, very carefully handed down through the generations. So there you go, the Dead Sea Scrolls. No one asked for that information, but I thought I'd share it with you. All right. Today, chapter 40, we get transported by Isaiah about 150 years forward as the people of God are now in exile in Babylon. So that's where we're up to in the book of Isaiah. That should make it clear as mud for all of you. The people of God are preparing to be released back to Jerusalem by the king of Persia, whose name was Cyrus. How has this happened? Well, at the end of King Hezekiah's life, it is prophesied that despite Hezekiah's faithfulness, future generations will be taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire. And indeed, that's what happens. 150 years after the events of King Hezekiah's life, um, you know, you've probably heard of King Nebuchadnezzar and the book of Daniel and going into the lion's den. They are dragged off into exile. It's one of the reasons, actually, that Isaiah is so revered as a prophet when Jesus comes along, is because the things that he prophesied came true. Okay, so he was he was he was marked out as a true prophet because he writes in Isaiah 39 that the people of God will go into exile by the Babylonians. 150 years later, that's what happens. So Isaiah is now talking um, to the southern kingdom of Judah. That's the state of affairs. The Assyrian threat has faded. The Babylonian threat rises. They capture Jerusalem. The people of God are now in exile in Babylon. Okay, you with me? So today is about God's great news. Isaiah chapter 40 starts this new section um, that ultimately we know will come to pass in Jesus. Um, But God promises in Isaiah 40 that despite their exile, despite their suffering, that God, when the Lord comes, will redeem his people. He will reveal his glory. He will humble the nations and he will give strength to the weary. Amen. So, Gussie Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 4. God will redeem his people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
A voice of one calling in the wilderness says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. So this new section of Isaiah begins with God's announcement of forgiveness. And that one will emerge who will announce and prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. So the people of God's long period of suffering and exile is going to come to an end. So God comforts his people with good news. And your hard service has been completed and this announcement occurs. Your sins are going to be forgiven. They're paid for and the Lord is coming. Now like a lot of the prophecies in the book of Isaiah, they get partially fulfilled in their own time and then they get fully fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. So the partial fulfillment happens with the rise of this Persian king Cyrus who defeats the Babylonians and then remarkably the anointing of the Lord is on him and he allows for God's people to return to Jerusalem. As I said, you probably know some of that history. If you've read the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, the lion's den, the fires, and so on. And then if you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll know about how they're allowed to return to Jerusalem by King Cyrus to rebuild the city walls and to rebuild the temple. And again, it's a wonderful story I'd encourage you to read. But like so much of the Old Testament, it never really is a lasting piece. Uh, it's never a real, true fulfilment of what God has promised. So it's still waiting for completion. So come forward with me. And it's interesting to me that both Matthew, Mark and John's Gospels, very early on, begin with the story of who? John the Baptist. And they reference this passage in Isaiah to explain what is going on. So listen to how Mark begins his gospel, drenched in the expectations of Isaiah 40. So Mark's gospel, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? From there, Jesus does appear on the scene. He's baptized and the Spirit of God descends upon him. A voice comes from heaven saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. He is then dragged off into the desert where he is tempted and he overcomes Satan. And then he begins his ministry announcing the good news of the kingdom of God has arrived. So again, we see the gospel writers identifying Jesus 
as the deepest, the truest, most satisfying fulfillment of what Isaiah had always intended. It's pretty cool, hey? It's pretty cool. John the Baptist comes preparing the way for the Lord. And then Jesus becomes the one who comforts his people. And in the truest sense, of course, do we not know that he will forgive our sins through his work on the cross. And that's the good news that is still preached today around the world. Many persecuted for it and having to practice their faith deeply underground. But, you know, people are still responding to that good news and becoming the children of God. Just this week, I came across a clip of Michaela Peterson, random, daughter of the famous psychologist, Jordan Peterson. And the clip was of her talking to a pastor about how in the last month, Michaela's become a Christian. Not half-hearted, but she's fully committed her life to becoming a follower of Christ. She describes having had all these major problems in her life, not managing them well, and being clinically depressed. And then a friend of hers encouraged her to pray, to ask God to reveal himself to her, and to read the Bible. So she just started reading the Bible and praying, and with a short period of time, some of these major problems in her life began to clear up, and for the first time in her life, she felt a deep, deep peace that she had never had before. And the clip finishes with Michaela talking about her own shock at becoming a Christian. Has that ever happened to anyone here? How on earth did I end up with manly life on a Sunday morning? I could be playing golf. Um, and yet here we are. Because of amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And really, this revelation of God is what Isaiah talks about next. When the Lord comes to save his people, he will reveal his glory. Next verse, Gussie. Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, again, when the Lord comes, he will reveal his glory. And we get two clues about what it looks like when God comes and reveals his glory. Verse 10 says, see the sovereign Lord will come with power. Okay, so we're going to keep that in the back of our minds. And then verse 11 says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. So that's what the glory of the Lord being revealed will look like. Mighty power and someone with a shepherd's heart who will care for his people. So we should expect when the Messiah arrives that he will do miracles. And we should expect someone who will have compassion and care for the people. Now that's a saviour worth following. Now let's come back to that as it relates to Jesus in a second. But I just want to focus in for a moment on that word glory. I reckon that's the best word in all of the Bible. In the Hebrew, the word for glory is kavod. And it denotes the manifestation of God's presence. Glory is the majesty. It is the weightiness of God in the presence of God. That's why sometimes when we ask at the end of services for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us, One of the common things that happens is people often feel like this weight pressing down on them. 
Now, I remember we had one of our first Alpha courses that this church ever did. This young Nepali guy who came to the course. And on the Holy Spirit Day, we just asked for the Holy Spirit to come and to fill people. And he just got stuck to his chair. And he couldn't move for like 45 minutes. The glory of the Lord just pressed down and weighed down upon him. So this glory is probably most accurately represented in Exodus 33. Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And it's too much for Moses to comprehend. He has to hide in a cleft of a rock as the presence and glory of God passes by. So to encounter the glory of God is an overwhelming thing. We are asking when we pray, show us your glory, to, to meet with his holiness. To meet with his majesty, to meet with his presence manifesting in our midst. So Isaiah promises that when the Lord comes to save his people, he will do what? He will reveal his glory. So we fast forward to the life of Jesus. Particularly John's gospel often portrays him as the glory of God. So remembering and coming to save his people, they're looking for the glory of God to be revealed with mighty power and a shepherd's heart. John 1 verse 14 introduces his gospel this way. The word that is God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it says we have seen his glory. The one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus turned up and we saw the glory of God. And the whole point of the Jesus coming, according to John, is the revealing of God's glory. God becomes flesh, dwells amongst us, and it is so much greater than what Moses could ever comprehend. How amazing that when God revealed his glory, it's not in judgment or anger, but it's in grace and truth. I often say, if God is like Jesus, then I'm here. You know? If this is what the presence and majesty of God looks like, if it looks like Jesus, then I'm in. And that's what changes lives, encounters with glory. That's why Michaela Peterson's friend wisely encouraged her, just pray for God to reveal himself to you. Because when any, whenever anyone meets with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are Changed. Whenever we meet with the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of God at work today, we are changed. Because what we behold, what we fix our eyes on, what we, what we, what we put our gaze upon, ultimately we become transformed into too. Now there's a couple of key moments in John which talk about glory. In the Greek it's now the word doxa, so kavod is doxa in Greek. And indeed the first miracle of Jesus at the wedding... Turns the water into wine. And it's described, John 2.11, as the revealing of his glory. Isn't that cool? But the next major one, the big one, is John 11. Jesus raises his dead friend Lazarus back to life. And the more I think about this, the more I'm convinced that this is just a major fulfillment of exactly what Isaiah 40 promised. You know, I'm just seeing Isaiah everywhere I look now. You know, I see like ducks walk across the pond and I'm like, Isaiah! You know, I'm seeing Isaiah everywhere. 
So remember, Isaiah 40, we've been told that in the revealing of God's glory, we would see mighty power and a shepherd's care. And I can't think of a more powerful and compassionate display of glory than raising someone back to life who has died prematurely. Power and compassion. John 11.4 says, When he heard this, Jesus said, this is the Lazarus raising the dead story, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So the whole point of this story is that we're going to see glory on display. Hoy, come on, this is good, okay? John 11 is Isaiah 40. And the key to this story, verse 11, no, sorry, what verse is it? I don't know, it doesn't matter. But Jesus said, when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? Come on. You couldn't get it clearer, could you? Hear what Jesus is saying in relation to Isaiah 40. In the raising of his dead friend, Jesus says, you will now see the glory of God revealed. Now I'm going to skip over the humbling of the nations and their rulers because I'm running out of time. Verses 21 to 24, which I don't think I even put up there. Uh, I just simply note, verse 23, that it says, When the Lord comes, there is good news that the empires of this world will come and go, but the kingdom of God will last forever. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to naught, to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. And I, I, I just quickly, quickly note, is that not the history of the world? Right? Empires rise, empires fall. Great evil is done. Even if you think about the last century and the rise of you know, the Nazis or the communists or whatever it was, put hundreds of millions of people to death. They're blown away. They're reduced to nothing in the ash pile of history. And yet, the kingdom of God lasts forever. The church stands. You know, it's not in my... But one of my favourite stories, the Czech Republic. You know, the church was oppressed under its communist regime for I think it was over 40 years. Churches were basically not allowed to exist. And then a day came when communism fell. And there was a little Baptist church outside of Prague and it got to ring its bells for the first time in 40 or 50 years. And they just put a sign up on the front of the church and it just says, the lamb wins. Isn't that the truth? You know? And that's what gives me hope for the persecuted church. The Lamb wins, and he will always win in history. All right, we're rushing through. Isaiah's got so much, sorry. Just go read it yourself. Let's finish with verses 28 to 31. And this is Eric Little, Chariots of Fire. When the Lord comes, he will strengthen his people. He will strengthen his people. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagle. They will run. They will not grow weary. 
and they will walk and not be faint. What a promise, final one for us today, that when the Lord comes, he will give strength to the weary and he will increase the power of the weak. Don't we all need that? (laughs) You know, when the Lord comes, the everlasting God, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. That's what an encounter with glory will do. And that's what we most passionately need in our lives. And as we close, what's this all saying to us in this cultural moment? I don't know about you, I'm feeling pretty tired at the moment. You know, it's it's been tough, hasn't it? It's been tough. And I, I feel energised by life getting back to normal. I feel energised by seeing you guys here today and church reopening and there's so many more of us still to come back and I, I can't wait till, I think next week we can just sing wholeheartedly. But if I'm honest, I'm pretty tired. You know, not one big thing, just lots of tiring stuff. I talk to a lot of pastors and, and people who just feel the same way. You know, just too much energy expended on arguments that don't go anywhere. You know, lots of stories of relationships that are really struggling, particularly in lockdown, mental health stuff growing, fatigue over just combative political discourse and cultural conversations. And I know I talked to a guy this week who was talking, he's a pastor, he thinks he's going to quit. You know, he's just, he's just done. He's just tired. That's why we need to keep reminding ourselves and telling ourselves again the good news of salvation. Isaiah 40. When the Lord comes, and indeed he has, he will redeem his people. He will reveal his glory. He will humble the nations and he will strengthen the weary. Amen. Amen. Amen.